Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. On today's show, we're talking about the rapid rise of Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who was this week named as Crown Prince and next in line to the throne of Saudi Arabia. Up until now, he's been Defence Minister, overseeing Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. We'll also check in on the rift between Qatar and the rest of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Joining us this week is John Alterman, the head of our Middle East programme at CSIS. What's known is, is since his father became king, he's been extremely ambitious across a wide variety of areas, principally the economy, although his his official job was, was really defense minister, but he had a job sort of chairing an economic commission, and, and his interest has been in the economy. It's been pushing this Vision 2030. It's been uh, about being a, a disruptive force in Saudi Arabia, in a country that a lot of people think needs disruption, including in Saudi Arabia. The question really is how successful he will be inspiring people to take risks on his behalf in his direction. Right? So you have a lot of billionaires whose business models are being harmed. You have a lot of people who are used to having jobs as an expression of loyalty. And if you start toying with that system, there are consequences. And, and the king's bet and the now the crown prince's bet uh, is that he can win people over to his way of thinking. The question, it seems to me, is not only an economic question of how well this will work, but a political question of will people acquiesce to the kinds of changes that he's trying to make. And, and we talked about trying to win him over to win them over to his way of thinking. What is his way of thinking and what, what kind of changes is he trying to make? Well, in many ways, it's, it's a program that was uh, worked out through Boston Consulting Group and McKinsey. It's about getting off a completely oil-centered economy and trying to create a more knowledge-centered economy. The, the Saudis have been trying to do this for quite some time. They have been trying to diminish the level of subsidies they give to Saudi citizens. They're trying to trim the the government workforce. The problem, the challenge in doing all of this is that these economic inefficiencies, as the consultants see them, are not there for economic reasons. They're principally there for political reasons. They're principally there so that people, large and small, have a stake in sustaining the system. And if you take that away, I understand the positive economic consequences of diminishing subsidies, of charging people market rates for fuel, of no longer subsidizing all kinds of things that have been subsidized in Saudi Arabia, of basically guaranteeing people jobs for life if they want them. I understand the economic benefits of walking away from that. What are the political consequences of walking away from that? Um, people want to give the king and the crown prince the benefit of the doubt. I think Saudis are accustomed to being deferential to authority. They're educated to be deferential to authority. But as paychecks shrink and prices go up, I think there are probably limits. And uh, the Saudis have walked back some of their economic reforms. I think that's a sign that 
that even the people most adamant about pushing the reforms understand their limits. And he's 31. He's young. So what kind of portfolio is he going to be taking on and what kind of weight's going to be on his shoulders then? Well, his portfolio has been massive because he's had both an economic and a security portfolio. And in many ways, he has been at the point of building a close relationship with the Trump administration, sort of on the strategic level. So what the the conference has done is without preparation, um, has really taken over a portfolio that includes everything. Again, how well this will work, one of the things I worry about is that the the Crown Prince doesn't have a lot of mistakes that he's had a chance to learn from. I mean, the first thing is you have to recognize you've made mistakes, then you have to sit down and figure out what your lessons are. And at his tender young age, with a relatively short track record, it's not clear to me what he thinks his mistakes have been. It's not clear to me what lessons he thinks he's drawn. You can point to a number of things where the outcome is either mixed or negative. And he has ratcheted up a war in Yemen that has not arrived to a conclusion, certainly a positive conclusion for the Saudis. He has this current escalation with the Qataris, which has not arrived at a positive conclusion. Uh, Greater hostility with Iran, not clear it's arrived at a... I mean, there are a number of things which, at best, he gets an incomplete. And some critics are saying that he he gets a low mark. So then we talked about the war in Yemen, um, and of course, we can move on to the, the GCC rift in a second. Um, is there going to be changes then in, in Saudi policy toward those those areas, or is it going to be, I guess, more of the same? Well, I don't expect a change in the policy toward the Yemen war. I think the, the Saudis in some ways have, have put themselves in a position where it's, it's hard to get what they want, and it's hard to accept something less than what they want. I think from an Iranian perspective. I think the Iranians put spectacularly little effort into a Yemen war. They don't really care about Yemen. I think they probably put tens of millions of dollars a year into Yemen, about what it costs to run a think tank in Washington. And they're getting the Saudis to spend billions of dollars in response. And for the Saudis to give themselves a black eye, Uh, just a big CNN report on suffering in Yemen. I mean, it's a horrible PR issue for the Saudis. And the Iranians then have a leverage point with the Saudis to negotiate something in Yemen. So I think if if you look at the the scale, the Iranians, who don't have a lot of resources, are giggling because they have pushed the Saudis into expending huge resources for something the Iranians don't really care about. And if if you're Iranian looking for leverage, and I think the Iranians approach the region preoccupied with their low level of resources, their low level of military capabilities, their relative diplomatic isolation in the world. And look at what they've driven the Saudis to do. I think this is, the the Iranians have manipulated this and the Saudis have allowed themselves to be manipulated to where this is very much uh, redounding to the Iranians' benefit. Uh, Let's talk about Qatar. It's escalated, I suppose. There's this list of demands that Saudi and other countries are are, are putting on to, to Qatar to change their behavior. What do you think about this latest step? One of the things that's been interesting is I think there was an initial sense that the Qataris couldn't couldn't withstand this, that losing the air links, losing the 
the food shipments that come across the Saudi border, that the place would shut down. It's in the middle of Ramadan when consumption goes up, and this would be catastrophic. And my impression has been it's not been catastrophic for the Qataris. They're digging in for a longer conflict. They've been able to import things. Uh, I think the first Turkish shipment just arrived, and the the Russians and the uh, and the Iranians are trying to help. I worry about two things. One is this can go on for a long time. This isn't an acute crisis. This could be an enduring crisis. Um, it could be an enduring crisis that has a number of longer-term consequences. One of them is it breaks down the GCC. It brings the Iranians onto the Arab side of the Gulf in a much more profound way. Uh, it gives the Russians an entree the Russians didn't used to have. I mean, these are all things that the Saudis and the Emiratis want to avoid. But you have to be careful in the way this plays out that you don't actually invite the circumstances you're trying to avoid. I'm not aware of evidence that the Qataris are about to fold. I don't know what would make the Qataris fold at this point. What is most clear to me is this is an issue that needs the United States to mediate because we have good friends on both sides of this, because there are things we want from all sides of this, because we have a strategic interest in this not spinning out of control. And you know, one of the handicaps has been the President and the Secretary of State have not been on the same page. And I think the Secretary of State is right. We should be negotiating this. We should be bringing this toward a swift conclusion. And ultimately, we should be getting things from both sides that we want to enhance our security and their security in the process. I always wonder about this is what what is underlying this that needs to be fixed that that has caused this to begin with. Well, there, there are longstanding grievances with Qatar. There are rumors about things that went on that sort of precipitated this. And one thing that came out was the the Qataris paid ransom um, to jihadis in, in Iraq to help free a uh, a hunting party that was kidnapped more than a year ago. There are rumors that the Qataris had set up a network in, in Saudi Arabia that they were paying as uh, agents of influence in the kingdom and intervening in Saudi politics. There have longstanding grievances against Al Jazeera and other news outlets. Um, there's a way in which Qatar had become a haven for people that other countries want to get rid of. And in some ways that, that solves a problem when Qatar takes them in. But, well, you know, when you uh, lay down with dogs, you get fleas. And I think they, they've had some of that problem. But what's strange about all this is there didn't seem to be an immediate proximate cause for such a sharp escalation in the conflict. There have been tensions between Qatar and its neighbors for a long time. And I think that's partly by Qatari design, that they've wanted to be independent from Iran, from Saudi Arabia, and from the United States. They didn't want to get too close to any one of them. And so they wanted a little bit of an irritant. I mean, Al Jazeera oftentimes is a useful dial to manipulate, to, to fine-tune how much tension there was. But the current conflict came out of absolutely nowhere and went 
spiked really high very, very quickly. Um, and it's not clear why now, why this. Uh, and it's increasingly unclear now how do we resolve this. And thanks to John Alterman for joining us this week. Before I go, I just want to let you know that you can send me any feedback on the show on Twitter or by email cquinn at csis.org. That's it for me. Thanks for listening.